welcome to Hope City Church, Melbourne, Australia. Stay tuned for another inspiring message by Pastor Andrew McGrath. My deep desire when we open up the Word of God is that people will fall in love with Jesus. I was thinking as I was preparing this message, the greatest desire of a father, I believe, for me, is that my children grow up to love Jesus, that have a deep passion for him, that guides their life. And uh, it's the same with the church, that my passion when I prepare a message is that every single person will be deeply rooted in the revelation of God's love for them and the love of Jesus for them, that they are secure in that love. And so my heart's desire is that as we open the word up today, that there will be light bulb moments where you get the revelation of God's amazing love towards you. Amen? Amen. So have you got Hebrews 4 and Exodus 28.1? Seeing then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus was successful in his ministry. Amen? Amen. Come on. Amen? All right. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. In other words, we must agree with what God and the Father, God the Father and Jesus and the Spirit of God are saying about the ministry of the high priesthood of Jesus. We need to hold fast our confession. Whatever God says about Jesus and his work is what we are to say. There's a lot of religion out there that says stuff about what Jesus has done and where we're at. But the Bible here says, we need to hold fast our confession. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is written so we get an understanding of what Jesus did at the cross, how he ascended, and his current day ministry right now is before the Father on our behalf. Jesus is saying something and doing something right now for you. It will do you no good if you don't agree with it. Jesus has died, gone to heaven for the whole world, but the whole world doesn't benefit because they don't agree with the ministry of Jesus. You must understand it and agree with it for it to work. Yeah. Is that making sense? Yeah. So we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but in all points was tempted like we were, yet without sin. So whatever it is that you're facing today, Jesus has faced that on your behalf and defeated it. So he is your victory today in heaven. If you can access what he has done for you, you'll have permanent victory in your life. So let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Not when you get your life right, not when you're perfect, but come because of what Jesus did. Every day that you wake up, no matter how good you've been or how bad you've been in your mind, you have confidence. All of Hebrews, all of the New Testament, New Covenant, is written with this in mind that God's people will have confidence to come before him to the throne of grace, regardless of how they are living, but because of what Jesus did. Because of one man's obedience, not yours, but his, Jesus' obedience. That is my confidence to wake up and say, today is going to be a good day. My Father is smiling towards me. Amen? Amen. So let's come with boldness before the throne of grace. So we would receive mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And we would discover grace to help us in our time of need. Now, Exodus 28.1 tells us that there are seven items that the, new, that the high priest would wear in his ministry in the tabernacle. A picture 
of what Jesus is doing for us today. So what the high priest wore, his clothing gives us an idea, an understanding, a revelation of what Jesus is doing for us. So in Exodus 28.1, we see that there are six here listed, but there's actually seven because you see it later on in Exodus. Items of the high priest's clothing, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, verse 4, it says of Exodus 28, a tunic, a turban, and a sash. And they will make these holy garments for Aaron and his sons that they may minister for me as priests. The other garment was the Urim and the Thummim, which we'll talk about later. Now, verse 9 of Exodus 28, we said last week that part of the garment was there was on the shoulder of the high priest two stones, one on each side that were set in gold with the names of the tribes of Israel, six on one side, six on the other, engraved in. We said last week that that is a picture of our security in Christ Jesus. Your names are engraved. They're written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The moment you get born again, you are secure in Him. These aren't stones that are, that are hacked on with blue tack or a bit of you know, duct tape. They are, in, they are put in a golden clamp setting. They are placed there so they can never move. And your names are engraved in, those, in that stone. Not just one tribe, but all 12. From the youngest believer to the oldest believer, from the greatest tribe to the least tribe, the moment you come into the kingdom, your name is engraved. And Jesus wears your name before the Father. Shoulders speak of strength. It's his strength that keeps you born again. It's his love, his grace. Not your doing, but the moment you say yes to him, he engraves your name and he brings you constantly before the Father. It is the Father's delight to look on the shoulders of Jesus and find your name. See, the enemy wants you to think that your names are blotted out every time you make, do a sin, every time you do something wrong, that the names are rubbed out. No, they're engraved in the heart of God. He sees your name. You are secure. Religion teaches eternal insecurity. In, out, uh-uh, uh-uh. It's all crazy. But true high priest revelation teaches eternal security. You are secure in him. Well, that'll lead everyone to sin. No, no, it won't. Security, secure sons, secure daughters love much. If you truly get a revelation of the heart of Jesus towards you, you won't want to sin. You will want to get closer to him. The second thing we talked about last week was the turban with a gold band on the turban or the headpiece of the high priest. It said on the turban, on this gold plate on the turban, Holiness to the Lord. A lot of Christians get hung up about holiness because they think it means don't go to the movies, don't chew gum, don't smoke, and don't hang around with people that do smoke. A lot of rules and regulations in my days that meant don't go to barn dancing. (laughs) Don't watch TV, especially on the Sabbath, because your TV will blow up. And don't wear jeans with holes in them. And women don't wear makeup. But holiness doesn't mean, holiness is not about behavior modification. Holiness, in in its real sense, if you look up the meaning of the word holiness, it means wholeness. It's the desire of the Father's heart. So we reread scriptures like, be holy as I am holy, as be whole 
as I am whole. We sung about the holiness of Jesus, and to many Christians, it's an abstract word. It literally means God is whole. He's complete in himself. He doesn't need anything to make himself complete. He is whole in himself and perfect. And out of that holiness, wholeness flows love and peace and kindness. Whole people don't hurt people. Whole people minister love. It flows from them. There's no agenda. It's broken people that hurt people. So God says, be holy. Not do holy, be holy. Come into my wholeness. So holiness really means to come into him. That's what holiness means, is to be separated into him. So we come into his wholeness and wholeness flows out. Be holy as I am holy. It's the desire of every human being. We don't realize it. When you go chasing sex, when you go chasing drugs, when you go chasing money, whatever it might be, it is really in the depth of it a cry for wholeness. That there's something missing that I need to feel complete. So all our activity is gaining things for wholeness. That's the sum of life. But the truth is, as Billy Graham said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in your heart that only God can fill. It's like you know when you're a little kid and you have those... Remember that little toy? All these new kids won't remember this because you've got iPhones. But back in my day, (laughs) when we had real toys that didn't need batteries... Sounding old now, aren't I? (laughs) Back in my mother's day, <laughs> there were toys and they had, sometimes they were plastic like a square and they had all shapes, circles and squares, remember that, and triangles? Yep. And you would, you would get a shape that would fit in that hole. And your, the object for a kid was to fill all the holes with the correct shape. And if you put a square hole, tr- square uh, plastic piece in a round hole, it wouldn't fit. And so you'd see babies trying to put square in a round hole because they didn't yet understand that squares go in squares. But it's ironic that as we grow older, we don't realise that only God can make someone whole. So we keep trying to put things that aren't God, that aren't whole, and all they do is take life. Every source that isn't of God takes away life, doesn't give. So you buy a new car and it smells nice for a day. We wash it, vacuum it, treat it like it's beautiful. You know, the most amazing thing. Isn't it funny that after two, three, four years, it's like, it's dirty, who cares? Because it's lost its life. Starts devaluing because everything that's not of God takes away, doesn't give. Be whole as I am whole. So if you're looking for wholeness today, it's not found in girls, it's not found in cars, not found in money. And I'm not saying that those things necessarily are wrong, but they're not the source of wholeness. Jesus is before the Father, and he is our source of wholeness. And we have confidence to come to him every time we're feeling broken. And I get that way at times. I think, Lord, I feel there's some stuff not right in my heart. I need to come, into you, come before you again and say, make me whole as you are whole. I want to come into your wholeness. So I picture myself coming inside his heart and experiencing his wholeness. And we're transformed from glory to glory, from one degree of wholeness to the next. The breastplate of righteousness. So what, one of the other garments was the breastplate. And breastplates, in the New Testament, speak of 
the revelation of righteousness. So if you're taking notes, Romans 1.17 says, In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. To understand what I'm talking about today, you need a revelation because it will not make sense to the human mind. It goes counter to all that the world teaches. The world teaches do good, get good, do bad, get bad. The world teaches that it's all about what you earn. It has a misunderstanding of grace and of righteousness, what it means to be born again. So you need to get a revelation of this today because if you don't, you won't get it. So we need to have eyes that see and ears that hear. And I'm praying today that as I share this, that revelation will flow inside you. It will get deep into your heart today. Amen? Ephesians 6.14 says, We put on the breastplate of righteousness. So if you're in Exodus 28, look down to verse 15. It says, You will make a breastpiece of judgment. I used to hate reading that word, judgment. A breastpiece of judgment, right? God's about to bash everybody. Of judgment. But it doesn't mean that at all. The work of a skillful workman... Like the work of an ephod, you will make it of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet. Gold representing the glory, blue, Jesus coming from heaven. Scarlet is the picture of man, like Adam coming from the red earth. It isn't interesting when you mix blue and red together, you get purple, which is a picture of royalty. When Jesus comes into your heart, you become the royal priesthood of God. So all these colors have, have an amazing insight into the work of Jesus. So they make this breastpiece. Verse 17, you will mount on the breastpiece four rows of stones. The stones will be according to the names of the sons of Israel, 12 according to their names. So you've got this breastpiece, 12 stones on it. Verse 29, and Aaron will carry the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. So that tells me this, that all those stones on the breastplate are pictures of you and I, the 12 stones, and they tell us first this, these stones are incredibly valuable and precious. They, they were gemstones that were of incredible value. Now, the Bible says that there's a parable about the pearl of great price. And many people teach that's about Jesus, but it actually isn't. You can't buy Jesus. The pearl of great price is you. That Jesus, the Father, sold everything that he had. He bankrupt heaven to get you. You are so precious to him, each and every one of you. And, and we see right from the beginning that close to the heart of Jesus before the Father is the value of every single person. And that's difficult for us to understand because we get lost in crowds and we think we're just one of many. But each of those stones were hand-picked and placed on the heart of Jesus that he would wear you on his heart before the Father every single day. You, my friend, are incredibly valuable. I tell my children often, that I am the most loved one. I tell them that they are the most loved ones. And say, well, what about me? Now, you're all the most loved ones. All of you, incredibly loved by God. You need to tell yourself every day that I'm the favorite one of God. John said that about himself. Was it true? Yes and no. It was true because he positioned himself 
close to the heart of Jesus and said, I'm the one that Jesus loved. But the truth is, everyone could have done the same. I'm the one he loves. Precious to him. And as we read through the scripture, we see this revelation of the preciousness of God's people attached to the heart of God. Isaiah 53 and 54 give us revelation about this whole concept of righteousness and the preciousness and the cost of, of our salvation to Jesus. Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Jesus was even born. It says in Isaiah 53, 11, it talks about the suffering of his, of his soul. And if you get a chance to read Isaiah 53, you realize the cost involved in Jesus securing your salvation. When you read through Isaiah 53, that he was made a guilt offering so you would never be guilty again. That he who knew no sin... I mean, we can't even imagine what it means to live a life without sin. But the sinless one, the pure one, he takes on all of the sin of the world. I say to you often, can you imagine getting all your sin and bringing it on you in one day? I know what it's like when I've been gone through some pain in my life and, and, and trying to carry that is enormous. But I can't imagine bringing all my pain, all the results of my sinful actions, and bringing it upon me in one moment. It would kill you. You would go crazy. You could not cope with all, all the pain, the trauma of all your sinful actions, let alone the sinful actions against you. And the Bible says that at the cross, all of the sin of the world, past, present, and future was placed on Jesus, so much so that his, his appearance was so contorted that they couldn't recognize him because of the preciousness of your life. That when he hung on that cross, he saw you and he said, I'll take what you deserve and I'll put it on myself. And the Father will judge me. You know, God is not lax with sin. At the cross... The wrath of God was poured out upon sin in its fullness and judged and satisfied. You're precious to him. Do you know it tells us in Exodus 38, sorry, 39, that one of the items of the high priest's garments were bells and pomegranates on the bottom of their of their robes, and so. Tradition says when they walked into the Holy of Holies and they performed their, their sacrifice once a year at the Day of Atonement, that, a, that the people would listen out for the bells ringing. And if I heard the bells stop, it was a sign that the priest had dropped dead. His sacrifice had not been accepted. This is Jewish tradition. And some think that the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 is a picture of that. That the moment fire came from heaven and the children of, of God were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues, the bells began to ring again. It was a sign that our high priest had gone to heaven and his sacrifice had been accepted and he ever lives. As the bells ring on earth, it's a picture that Jesus is alive in heaven. As we pray in the Holy Spirit, it's the sound that heaven's sacrifice has been accepted. How amazing. We are precious to him. 
And so Jesus took on our sin and our guilt that we may be made righteous. I want to read you something from this book I picked up from... I encourage you to read this, not because I wrote it, but because if you truly get the heart of what is written here, it will change your world. In fact, I had an email from a, a pastor that, that told me that, that as he read this just recently, he began to sob and weep at the fresh revelation of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And I write about this whole concept of being precious and now made righteous before the Lord. As I said before, he was judged and he took on our sin so that we would gain his righteousness. It was a transaction. He took our sin, we got his righteousness. What an amazing thought. You go, oh, I already know that. Well, Peter says, you know what? While I'm alive, I'm going to keep telling you the same thing over and over and over again because there's more. There's more revelation. You need to hear it. You need to be reminded because we subconsciously we begin to function out of that revelation. We think God's angry with us. When things don't go right, we think we've done something wrong. We don't function out of rest. We, we start to strive and get anxious and worked up. If you're worried and anxious, it's a sign that you're out of the revelation of righteousness. In righteousness, you'll be established. We'll be satisfied when we awake in his likeness, in righteousness. When we begin to realize that we are seated with him, and all our blessings flow out of that. Not out of your works, but out of relationship. He's a good, good God. So I write, righteousness is a perfect, permanent right standing with God. It is the very nature of Jesus in me. Listen to these words. I have such a perfect nature today that I can stand before my Father without any trace of shame, guilt, condemnation, fear, unworthiness, or inferiority. It is a position of absolute confidence. Can you hear that? You can stand before God today, and God sees you exactly as his son, clean, pure. Oh, but, but, what, but, but what about all my sin? No, he sees you. This is how he chooses to see you. Clean, perfect, pure, holy, free from condemnation. Righteousness is the assurance of the privileges of sonship. My faith in Jesus became the vehicle where the righteous nature of Jesus was given to me. Out goes my sinful nature, and in its place I receive the holy, righteous nature of Jesus. His nature is without sin. It is, in a, it is a willing and an obedient life. That's the nature you get. His perfect, perfect nature is given to you. Yes, you. Yes, you. So when God looks at you, he sees Jesus. And everything that Jesus did on the earth, his victory over sin, his fulfilling the, the law, his, his, his defeat of the enemy was so that you would get that same nature placed inside you, his spirit in your spirit. Your spirit standing today before God is absolutely perfect. And all our brokenness and sinful, willful actions come as a result of not knowing who you truly are, not living out of that position of perfect nature before the Father. It is the soul gaining understanding and revelation 
and direction from a sinful world and not from your spirit standing. Every day you should speak to your soul and say, I command you to live in alignment with your spirit standing. You are pure. You are clean. You are holy. You are not needy. You are not looking for attention. You are not looking for fulfillment from anyone else but the Father. I command you in Jesus' name to come into alignment with who you truly are. That's what you do. I'm a little bit over some of this hamby-pamby stuff that goes on in Christian circles today. Come into alignment in the name of Jesus. This is who you are. You're speaking out of fallen identities. At the cross, Jesus did something for you that is profound. If you would truly see it, you are a new creation. Don't tell me about the genealogies of your mother, your father, your grandfather. and your... You are a new creation. You have his DNA. And so most of the trouble with, with stuff going on in our past is our soul is still attached to the things of the past and getting its direction from sinful conditions and not from the reborn spirit. Yeah. Fellowship with your spirit and you'll be transformed. Yeah. That's the deal. The bells are ringing. He's alive and well in heaven and he's done an amazing work on your behalf. There's much more in that book that you should read about righteousness. Exodus 28, verse 29. It says, And Aaron, so we talked about these precious stones that tell us that we are the righteousness of Christ, of God in Christ Jesus. Pure, perfect before him. It's an imputed righteousness, may I add. It's not yours. See, a lot of people say, oh, are you righteous? No, I'm not really righteous. No, it's not yours anyway. Really? It's his, transferred to you. The word says it's imputed. So it's, a, it's, it's something that God did on your behalf without you being a part of. So he put Abraham to sleep as a sign of the new covenant. And God the Father, God the Son, cut a covenant on our behalf. And Abraham woke up to a new day like Adam and Eve did. They woke up on the seventh day to a work that God had done on their behalf. And we wake up to this revelation that God did something with Jesus at the cross on our behalf, and we by faith to say, yes. Yes, Lord. So Exodus 28, 29, Aaron will carry the names of the children of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. This word judgment, it is the righteous judgments of God. That word judgment means the decree to vindicate to defend or contend. It's a legal decision. So this breastplate is a judgment breastplate. It is the decisions of God, what God is commanding on our behalf, what he is saying about us. They are righteous decrees that God is speaking. Are you getting that? In heaven, God through Jesus is speaking over his church, holy, free from accusation, cleansed, pure, whole, blessed, prosperous, mightily loved. That is the sound that is echoing from heaven today over your life. The old covenant was a message of judgment. But the new covenant, Jesus came to the world not to judge the world, but to be judged for the world. A lot of uh, prophecies that we hear today is laced with judgment. Well, you know what, if Australia doesn't get its act together, God will judge us. 
Really? Really? Well, there goes to the cross. I thought he's, he's, the wrath of God was satisfied in Jesus. In the Old Testament, judgment was never satisfied. Elijah puts out the offering, the fire from heaven comes down and consumes the offering. And every time judgment came down in the Old Testament, the judgment was greater than the sacrifice. But when it came upon Jesus, the sacrifice was greater than the judgment. And Jesus took on the judgment of the world and said, it is finished. In other words, paid in full. The judgment's done. There is no judgment left on the world. Now, there's a final judgment coming for those that reject him, but we are not living in an age of judgment. We are living in the age of grace. Think of this. There are essentially two covenants that flow through the Old Testament, the Abrahamic covenant and the covenant that they cut with God at Mount Sinai. A law-based covenant. And isn't it interesting when Israel left Egypt and they came out through the Red Sea, they complained, they murmured, they were angry at God and God never judged them. Not once. Not once. He never said, right, you're all a pack of... (laughs) You're all finished. Send down the fire, blow them up. Let's start again. No, he forgave them. It's interesting. He continued to bless them. Abraham, he sins, he lies, he cheats, he steals. Not that I recommend you do that. But God never once judged him. He blessed him. Because the Abrahamic covenant was based in faith. The law is not based in faith. It was faith in the goodness of God. Israel, through their unbelief, rejected the goodness of God and said God signed them up to a new deal called the law. And the law came to destroy this mindset of unbelief and lead them to Christ. Christ is the end of the law. So Jesus comes to earth and he's surrounded by a nation steeped in the law, rejecting Abraham. For 400 years, there had been not one miracle. Jesus comes, they're all astonished, casting out demons, healing the sick, because the religious leaders had ingrained in the mindset of the Jewish people a law-based approach to God. Do good, get good, do bad, get bad. If you're sick, if you're having problems in life, you have done something wrong and God is punishing you. So he comes to the Pharisees, he says in Luke 11.52, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you experts in the law. You've taken away the key to knowledge. As the Abrahamic way to God. What is it? Faith in the goodness of God. Seeing Jesus today as your high priest. That his desire is always towards me. His face shines towards me. He desires to bless me and prosper me and love me. That's the heart of God. So Jesus comes to a nation stooped in this mindset of law and fear and judgment, and insecurity. He comes to a woman at, at, at Luke, 11, sorry, Luke 13, 11, in the synagogue. And the Bible says that she was a daughter of Abraham. So when you read that, it's a light bulb moment. It's saying to you today that Jesus is coming to people stooped 
in fear and judgment and law, yet they're a daughter of Abraham. They have access to reaching. How was it that David in the Old Testament could spend years, years in a, another covenant where he accessed the presence of God 24-7? How could he create David's tabernacle, David's tent, where all the laws and the sacrifices didn't apply to him because he was functioning under an Abrahamic covenant, which was faith in the goodness of God. So Jesus comes to this woman. She's bowed down. She's crippled. For 18 years, she can't get up straight. 18, the number of bondage. The law will cause you to look at yourself. Look at, she's focused on the ground, her problems, her inadequacies, her sin. It will keep you in bondage. The devil is a liar. He will condemn you. You'll never be good enough. You never pray enough. You don't read the Bible enough. You're not kind enough. You don't smile enough people. You don't witness to enough people as if he cares. He's a deceiver. He says to those that aren't born again, you're not bad because you do good things. He says to the believer, you're not good because you do bad things. He's a liar. He'll cause you just to be so focused on yourself. Introspective Christians are dangerous. They are the ones that are depressed and sad. Look up. Look up. Look at what he's doing on your behalf. Pharisees said to the woman, you've got six days to be healed. Don't come on the Sabbath. Don't rely on God's goodness to get ahead. You've got to work hard. More, 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 more. Appease, 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 appease. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Come on the Sabbath. It's the best. Why did Jesus do all his work on the Sabbath? Well, that's the only day he had available. No, he was... <laughs> He was trying to say this. He had to work six days. He had a job like all of us. And he can only work. No, no. No, he was trying to say to everybody, there is a rest in God for the weary. When you've been beaten down by the law for so long and so downtrodden, this woman hears the message, I am a daughter of Abraham. And the blessings of God don't need to be earned. They are received by faith. Thank you, God. All that you want to do for me is rooted in this revelation that I am the Son of God and you love me and you want to bless me. Now, all the things that we do, prayer and fasting and reading the Bible, they're wonderful things for the transformation of a life, but they don't earn you anything. The Bible calls these things, done in the wrong motivation, dead works. Dead works. Hebrews 6 says, we need, to leave, uh, the, we need to leave the elementary things and go on to the deeper things. But the, the foundational things are faith in God and repentance from dead works. How many dead works in the church? Trying to make God happy. Trying to please Him by our behavior. Not through the fact that we are loved by Him. There are all these things that we do. And it's, it's so close. The right thing done with the wrong motivation will kill you. Let's do the right thing with the right motivation. We don't dismiss prayer and holy lifestyles and all those things. But they come rooted in the revelation that I am the son that God loves. And if I find myself in a pig pen or in a palace, he will still be waiting for me. So when I make my bed in hell or in heaven, he still loves me. He wants me in heaven, not in hell. But I'm talking about in our lifestyle, but he always will love me. 
And when I know he loves me, I can get out of the pig pen. That's why I'm a big teacher on this weird revelation that God turns his back on sin. And that's a problem because you can't get out of sin without God. It's called self-righteousness, self-effort. Well, I'll fix myself up first, then God will come. Really. All the best. Adam and Eve in sin, God didn't say, well, right, there's some fig leaves. Here's, here's a knife. Cut them, sew them, and then come and see me. What did he do? He comes to them in their sin, kills an animal, rips the skin off, sews on a suit and says, here, let me cover you in your sin. That's the heart of God. And I used to wait when I sinned, which was very rare when I was young. <laughs> Sometimes I'd wait days to talk to God because I'm trying to recover myself, get myself appropriate enough to talk to him. It's weird, isn't it? Like he was always there. It's like, turn your face, God. Remember what you did at the cross? Turn your face. Let me sort myself out. Now, God was in Christ reconciling the world. He never turned his face on Jesus. He was with Jesus. It felt like God had turned his face because that's what sin does. It makes us think that God has rejected us. Jesus was feeling and uttering the voice that every human being utters when they feel like they're being rejected by God. Why have you forsaken me? And God said, I have not. I'm here. That's the enemy. He lies. Sin lies to us. It says, you, you are forsaken. You've done it right. That's it. That's the last chance. I always used to think I'd committed the unpardonable sin. In fact, when I got to that verse in the scripture, I would start praying in tongues and skip over it. <laughs> Plead the blood. I know that sounds strange, but you need to understand my mindset. I was constantly taunted by this fact that I'd done something and that was it. Yeah. Right, you're out. But God, in his grace, comes to the chief sinner, Paul. And he loves him. That's the heart of God. Isaiah 54 is the chapter that follows Isaiah 53. I know that's a revelation to some of you. Isaiah 53, Isaiah 54. Isaiah 53, Jesus suffering. Isaiah 54, the revelation of the new covenant. Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Jesus came that Jesus would redeem us. In Isaiah 54, 7, it says, For a moment I hid my face from you. And he's saying, through that old covenant period, it felt like I was not there. It felt like I was an angry nasty, unpredictable God. I did that because of your unbelief, because you turned me through your unbelief into that. I was never that. Your unbelief made me that in your mind. You see, there's a new covenant coming. 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah looked and saw Jesus, the Lamb of God. And listen to what he says. You may have read this, but Isaiah 54, 9. This is like the days of Noah. Noah, when I swore the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. Has the earth ever flooded again? No. Will it? Absolutely not. I have sworn that I will never be angry with you again. I will never condemn you or rebuke you. 
Did you hear that? God cannot be angry or rebuke you again. He said, I will never be angry. Did you hear that? Sometimes I felt like God's been really ticked off with me, but he's never angry and he will never condemn me. Is this getting into you? Those condemning voices are not God. They are your own mind. They are the devil. They are other people, but they will never be God. He always lifts you up, always believes in you. That's what love does. That love chapter is actually God. That's not how we should behave. It's who God is. Love never fails. It believes all things, hopes for all things. The fruit of the Spirit aren't things that you need to do. They are voice uh, awareness. They're like voice activators of the Holy Spirit. This is how I speak to you. We thought these are things. I've got to be more self-control, more loving, more faithful. Really, all the best. No, that's how God speaks to me. Love, faithfulness, self-control. If I hear him speak those words over me, I become them. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. They're voice-activated messages from God. He always speaks to me in faithfulness, in love, with self-control. God doesn't vent on me. Are you getting this? How do we turn the fruit of the Spirit into this nonsense that they teach at, at schools and, and at church and in places all around the world? Right, let's believe in all the fruit of the Spirit. He says, I'll never condemn you. The mountains may be moved. The hills may shake, but my loving kindness, my persistent, unconditional tenderness will never be removed from you. He says, before I'll stop loving you, all the mountains, Mount Daninong, it's got to go. All the hills will shake. The whole world will blow up before I will stop loving you. So Noah, he says it's like the days of Noah. Noah, we know, is the first man born after Adam dies in the genealogy of Christ. He's a picture of the new believer, the new covenant testament believer. He's saying, this is like the covenant I made with Noah. Look at him and you'll see what I want to do in you. So the judgment comes down, the rains come down and the boat went up. And the boat goes up and lands on top of Mount Ararat. The curse is reversed. The boat stops. He's saying, I'm going to reverse the curse of the law. You think about Noah, this is what I'm going to do with all the New Testament church. I'm going to reverse the curse mindset. They're going to see me as a, again as a loving father. How is it, church, the most important oath in all of the Bible and hardly any Christian knows about it? Oh, we know about the rainbow. He'll never flood the earth. But here he says, I have sworn to you. I'll never be angry. And how come in Isaiah 54 we don't preach that? We don't know that. If you say to most Christians, what's the most important oath in the New Testament for the New Testament church? They wouldn't have any idea. But God says, I've sworn to you, I will never rebuke you or be angry again. Well, there goes probably 85% of New Testament prophecies we hear. <laughs> what God are they talking about? What covenant are these people operating? He is a good, good father. That song was written, I believe, as a fresh revelation to the church. And we've sung it to death. But you know what? The revelation is still valid today. He will always be a good father to his children. A good, good father. 
Yeah, but what about judgment? Well, I'm glad you asked me that because whenever I preach these things, I know that there are at least one or two Pharisees listening online that will say, I've got more judgment scriptures in the New Testament you can poke a stick at. It says that if we sin willfully, after we've got the knowledge of truth, there's no sacrifice left for sin, but a fiery certain judgment is waiting for us. And they, they are tormented by these abstract so-called verses in, in the New Testament that indicate that there is still judgment left. And if you don't get this right in your mind, you will always be afraid and uncertain in your relationship with the Lord. He will never judge you again. But Hebrews 10.26 says he will. If you keep on sinning, there's no sacrifice left for sin. But there's a fearful expectation of judgment. You're out. You keep on sinning. Listen, you sin, you go home today and sin, you will be judged. It says it. It does. But see, Hebrews is written between the death of Jesus, somewhere between that, in AD 70, when the temple was torn down. And do you know what the Jews were doing, those that were coming into the faith? They were hearing the message of the gospel, and yet they were going to the temple every day to offer sacrifices to, for the forgiveness of their sin and the appeasement of the judgment of God on their life. And the writer of Hebrews says, if you keep on sinning, if you keep going back and trying to live a lifestyle that is appeasing God... and we do it today. We do something wrong, we try and punish ourselves. We get angry at ourselves, disappointed at ourselves. We, we don't talk to God for a day. We stop taking communion. We can't believe anymore that God would love us nor bless us. In fact, and, and I'm not saying we should do this, but sometimes God has blessed me many times despite my behavior. Like you do with your children. Right? That's it. You've upset me today. No more food. <laughs> you can find your own way to school. Dress yourself. Then it's all over. No. They lock those sort of people up. But that's what we think God's like. These people offering sacrifices every day, they're coming to the brazen altar, an altar made of bronze, judgment, made of acacia wood, talking about our frailty. And they're offering sacrifices every day. Because they don't believe that one sacrifice was enough to make them perfect. And he's saying, you keep doing that. You're insulting the spirit of grace. You're trampling the work of Jesus under your foot. And we think we're doing that because we sin. Really? You can't insult grace by sin. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds more. See, that's the world's thinking. That's why it says... Mr. So-and-so, say he's a politician, he's been exposed as a liar, he's stolen money, and now he's disgraced. He's fallen from grace. And the world's mindset is when you do wrong, you fall from grace. But God's mindset is when you do wrong, you fall into grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. The world has twisted it. The moment you do something wrong, it's a disgrace. You disgraceful person. 
Galatians 5.4 says, You are trying to be made right with God through the law, through self-effort. You have alienated yourself from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Did you hear that? How do you fall from grace? Self-effort. Self-righteousness. Look at me. So when those people look at those and go, Oh, I never would have done that. That's a disgrace. You've fallen from grace. No, actually, you've fallen from grace because you're self-righteous. You have cut yourself off from Christ. You're making out that you're better than what you are. You're making out that you're holy and righteous because of your behavior. That person has fallen into the loving arms of grace. It's those that have given up that are at the deepest, darkest valley. They fall into the hands of a loving God. Let your grace be mine. Let your grace be mine. So he wears this breastplate. And we look at it. As he stands before the Father with all our names, precious gold, precious stones with their names on it. He stands before the Father. He says, remember Walter, Brian, John? Remember them? They're on my heart. I gave my life for them. Father says, I remember them. Lord, when you look at them, see them through me. Pure, holy, spotless. He always stands before the Father. The Father's looking at our precious value. His grace is given to us. His love, our standing before him is assured. Now here's the interesting thing as we close. That inside this breastpiece were two stones called the Urim and the Thummim. And we don't know a lot about them. But what we do know, they were stones made for decision making. So often when Israel didn't know what to do, call the high priest, he would pull out these stones and they'll be yes or no answers. You ever played that game? Yes or no? And so they think that you would, you would ask a question that demanded a yes, shall we go up to the mountain? Yes or no? And they believe that these stones would light up, one for yes and one for no, and would give direction from God to the people. It was hidden inside this breast piece. And I've heard God say, the more you get secure in your love for him, the easier direction comes. The easier we begin to hear his voice and know what he's doing. He'll lead us. He'll bless us. He'll release us in that. He's, see, the blessing of God is tied into the, the directions of God and the voice of God. And it's when we're outside doing our own thing, trying to earn favor and struggle and strive and worried and anxious we can't hear his voice. That's why I wrote my second book. You can't hear God speak when you're not at peace. When you don't come into that safe place to his heart, knowing that he loves me regardless, that is the place to hear the voice of God. The yes and the no. All our success, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. We're not seeking after it. We're seeking the fuller revelation of it. Blessings are on the head of the righteous. See, it's a mindset. We begin to hear God's voice because we know that we're loved by him. See, you'll never hear the voice of God when you feel like you've disappointed him. He's angry with you. He's judged you. He's condemned you. You haven't prayed enough. He only talks to Pastor Andrew. He's got no time for you. I've found in my darkest times that God's come and spoken to me. And that voice, because I've believed in his heart for me, his presence has been so real. If you're not hearing his voice, can I suggest, get close to his heart. The yes and the no, 
They come to those that are tucked inside his heart. I'm the righteous one. In righteousness, you'll be established. He loves you. And that's what he's doing today. He's not up there playing, you know. <laughs> you know, Lord, you know all things. He's standing before the Father with a very, very clear, defined role. He's not on the clouds playing a harp. He's standing before the Father saying, Father, we come into agreement today. Your, our children are, are righteous, clean, pure, secure. And when there's an agreement between heaven and earth, things begin to move. And as we begin to confess Jesus as our high priest, and this is what a lot of Christians don't see, that it's your agreement that makes it a reality. It's real in the mind of God, but it has to be real in your mind. You have to receive it and say, I believe, I may not feel like it. Everything around me may defy that, but I believe what you're saying, Jesus. Let there be harmony between heaven and earth today. Yes and amen. You are a good, good father. Never will be angry. You've made an oath that you'll never condemn me. Your blessing is upon me. And then we begin to hear his voice. Then he begins to say, go and we go. Then we're in step with him. Because we're operating out of that place of acceptance and love. Amen? He wants to speak to you this week. I'm convinced of that. You know, every time that you get before him and let him love you, there will be a word from the Lord this week. He's got solutions, ideas, strategies, all sorts of things that he wants to share with his people. The writers of the New Testament were those that got close to his heart. And that's my prayer that I want to be close to his heart today and be loved by him and hear his voice. He is our great high priest. And every time you hear that phrase, think of him in heaven, dressed for success, our success. And he's speaking to the Father about all that he wants to do. He wants to make us whole, secure. He wants to give us a revelation of how clean we are before him. We thank you for that today. My prayer, Lord, is everyone listening on podcasts, watching live stream, those here today, we get a fresh revelation of Jesus, our great high priest, how much he loves us, that we are his precious ones on his heart. He bears us continually before the Father. We thank you, Father, today. And if you can hear my voice today, no matter where you are, what day it is, Jesus loves you. And he came to die for you. He came to be seen so you could be righteous. He bore our punishment so we could go free. He bore our sin so we would know what it means to live continually in the presence of the Father. And he wants to speak to you today. He wants to be your Savior, your Lord, the one that sticks closer than a brother. And all you need to do is believe. Believe in him. Put your faith in him. That's the Abrahamic covenant. It's a covenant of faith in the goodness of God. The gospel is the almost too good to be true news. 
It's way better than what we thought could ever be. We get what Jesus deserves. So we thank you for that today. We receive you, Jesus, as our Lord and our Saviour. Come and fill us this day with fresh revelation. Let every person be established in righteousness. Let it be the foundation of their world. Safe, secure, sons and daughters of God. Pure, holy, clean, blessed, righteous. Sheep that hear your voice, that won't follow the strange voices. Those that know how the Father speaks to them. Faithfulness, kindness, self-control. He speaks to us with words of peace and goodness. You're such a good God. And we tune into the airwaves of heaven, how Father and Son speak to us. Why don't you just do that right now? I feel the presence of Jesus here. Oh, we thank you for your kindness, your goodness, your mercy. Even when we feel like we've neglected our relationship with you, you stay right beside us, waiting for us to turn. For some of you may have gone days, weeks, without hearing his voice. He's there like the the prodigal son and the father. He's, He's waiting every day with eyes of joy and love. He doesn't want to scold you and say, where have you been? He says, welcome. I've been waiting for this moment. And I'll keep waiting. And every time you turn to me, I will be there in faithfulness. My hands will be towards you to hold you and to make you whole. What a good, good father. We could never, ever do anything to deserve his love and his grace. And the great news is we don't have to. It's called grace. We thank you for that, Lord.